take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, the end of the book of John, John chapter 20. We're going to finish up our series today called Help My Unbelief. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about what to do with our doubts and how common doubt is. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks and going to finish that up today. Let me uh, give you an invitation to next week. A couple of things for you to know. Um, First of all, next Sunday, we have very special guests with us. They were scheduled to be with us in November, but because of COVID and because of uh, some cases that popped up here, we were unable to have them. Um, And so we have missionaries from the international field that will be here next Sunday morning speaking live in our worship service. Now, because of the sensitivity of where they are serving, um, the place in the world where they're serving, we are not going to be able to broadcast that. And so if you're online, you will not be able to see those missionaries. Uh, I will be delivering a message online for you, specifically those of you that are online next week. Uh, But if you're here in the building, obviously you'll be able to meet them and to hear their story. And I'm really excited about uh, us having that opportunity. Let me also mention, and it's just cool how God works sometimes, uh, a few weeks before um, we confirmed that they were going to come back and speak and the date that they were going to speak, I had a meeting with someone who is part of an organization that owns several apartments. Actually, it's a sister organization of them that helps churches and this company do ministry within those apartment complexes. And they called me to say that there's an apartment complex they'd acquired a little while ago, and they would love for us to be involved in helping to minister to that apartment complex. And it is literally the apartment complex on our back parking lot. Um, And they are a company that wants to come in and help train us and walk with us and give us the ability to go in and do ministry in a very real and profound way to the apartments that are right here at our back door. And so next Sunday, they are coming to train anyone that would be interested in being a part of that apartment complex ministry, what that looks like, sharing the gospel, doing Bible studies, doing prayer with them. It's going to be an awesome opportunity. The cool thing, how God brought all this together is we talked about him doing that person coming in, doing it next um, next Sunday. His name is Jim Ball. And when I talked to Jim Ball and then I talked to this missionary couple, what I soon discovered is the two of them have been working together doing apartment ministry where they're living right now for the last year while they have been stateside. And so our international missionary is going to be part of that training next week as well. And so it's a really awesome opportunity. So I want you to be aware of that. We're going to start a series of messages with our missionaries next week, but then through the month of May about what it means to be on mission. We're going to look at some examples from Scripture and from uh, history of people that have been on mission with their lives. And I'm really excited about where God is leading us in the midst of that. And the month of May, that's a crazy month. We have... Mother's Day that is in the midst of that, graduate recognition in the midst of that, Memorial Day in there, parent-child dedication. It's going to be a fun month together. And so I just encourage you to be here next Sunday if you can at all. And uh, if you're joining us online, uh, you'll have a special service as well. John chapter 20. Let me ask you this question. I want you to raise your hand. Have you ever said something in your life that you regretted saying? Anybody? All right. I just want to see if your arms worked at this hour. All right. All right. We've all said something that we regretted. Here's the question I have for you that goes along with that. Can you imagine if 
something you said that you regretted after the fact. Because like I said, we've all been in the midst of a situation where someone gets us upset and we just say something that we don't really mean to hurt someone, but we know that it does. Or we say the wrong thing in a situation or we ask the wrong question or we give out an answer that's not quite right or something happens and we just say something. And for many of us, it's like we wish we could catch the words coming out of our mouth, but that doesn't always happen. Now, imagine if you will, what if something you said that you regretted saying became the thing that is most associated with your life, both now and forevermore? Well, that'd be fun, right? Imagine if something that just kind of came out and you look back on your life like, man, I wish I'd never said that. And that is what you were known for. Today, we're going to talk about a guy that that's true. The guy we're going to talk about is Thomas. When I say Thomas from the Bible, what's the first thing you think of? What's the nickname he has? Doubting Thomas. Man, he got a bad rap, didn't he? I mean, Peter didn't get a nickname, even though he said some really ridiculous things in his time, right? Nobody else in Scripture gets the kind of nickname of Doubting Thomas. And yet... He is what is really a minor player in almost all of the Gospels, except for John. He's mentioned only once in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's mentioned a few times in John, but it's all to set up the story that we're going to look at today. And I feel bad for Thomas because his nickname is not truly descriptive of most of what happens in his ministry or life. It's for one thing he said at one particular moment that let's be honest, is not that ridiculous of a statement considering what he was being told was true. Right? And he just says, I want to verify it with my own eyes. I feel bad for Thomas too because he's not the only person in the Bible that doubted. Nobody calls John the Baptist doubting John the Baptist. Right? Even though John the Baptist sent people to say, is Jesus truly the one? We saw last week, we looked at John chapter 6, that there were many who abandoned the faith when Jesus was teaching. It was hard teaching. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. And many left the faith. Nobody really gets on them for their doubt. Job spent 37 chapters having discussions with friends and doubting God in the midst of it. And they don't call him doubting Job. And even in Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of Matthew, right before the Great Commission, right before the end, it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. And this is the apostles and many other disciples that were gathered, but some of them doubted. And so Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap, but the reason I think people latch on to that phrase is because if we're honest with ourselves, So many of us have spent periods of time in our own life when we doubt it. And so let's look at John chapter 20. I actually want to start looking at the end of this chapter, and then we'll come back and read Thomas's story. Because I think it's interesting that John gives us the purpose of his book right after the story of doubting Thomas. John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31 says this. Any other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John says the whole purpose of this book, and then he goes to the end to show Peter's reconciliation with the Lord. But he says the whole reason that I wrote is so that you will experience through my writing what Thomas experienced with Jesus in the story I just told you. That as you stack up the story of the story after story of what has happened in this life, that you will verify with your own eyes, with your own ears, with your own senses that something different is happening here and that you will also believe and not just say okay I kind of agree with that but that you will place your life upon it that's what he says that by believing you may have a life in his name That means not only that you will have eternal life forever, it means that you will have what John describes in John 10.10 as the most abundant life you can have. The most full life, the most fulfilling life, the most special life you can imagine here, the most engaging life you can have. And so when he pairs that at the end of the story of Thomas, we have to ask the question, what was Thomas's journey like? So if you've got your Bibles open, look back with me, starting in chapter 20, verse 18. This is after the resurrection. This is right at the morning that Mary Magdalene and the others see. And it says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went in and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. So she recounts her stories. So she tells the disciples, and we don't get a sense at this moment exactly what they believed, but we know it didn't change a whole lot their boldness at this time. Because verse 19 says, and when it was evening on the first day of the week, so this is Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the resurrected Christ, and it says the disciples were gathered together with doors wide open, boldly proclaiming that they had heard about Jesus. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? They were doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Now we'll talk about that when he says it to Thomas in a little bit as well. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then down to verse 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And so what he says is, I wasn't, he wasn't there. So the other disciples have seen Jesus, they've been apart with Jesus, they've understood Jesus, but Thomas wasn't there that day. Now, before we jump into Thomas's story, let's just talk about the advantage the disciples had. Thomas, we all know what he's going to say, right? He's going to say, I'm not going to believe it unless I can touch the wounds. The disciples had already seen them. They had the benefit of having exactly experienced what Thomas is asking to do. Now, some people ask the question, where was Thomas when everybody else was together? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they had a Starbucks order they needed at that night. I don't know where he was. I know he probably regretted missing that meeting. And the moral of that story is don't ever miss church. You don't know what you're going to miss, right? 
You don't know what's coming. That's a joke, sort of. Be here, all right? You never do know when God is going to move. And can't you imagine the internal dialogue with Thomas about missing that moment? I am sure that there have been multiple times in my life when I have missed the movement of God for some reason that in retrospect is not worth missing the movement of God. The excuse that I give or the reason that I have or the obligation that I thought was there or whatever it may have been, I've missed it because of something that was much less significant. I remember when I was in college, in college, went to a Christian university, we had chapels. And when I went, there was a certain number of chapels you had to have in order to, in order to like pass. Like the chapel was a part of what you had to do. And so I think some of the places have relaxed that kind of stuff, but we like literally had a checklist. We had to scan our card going in and out. And there was always a week in the middle. They didn't call it revival. They called it Christian life week or they called it something. But it was also known as most of our students as catch up week where you got behind on your chapels and they would have every night they would have one. And so oftentimes, even though it was kind of like a revival, it was the least interested people at a church chapel service. I mean, you would literally see people with books out reading and all of that. And I was at a catch-up service, probably for reasons to catch up. And God just moved. Service started at 7 o'clock. It was supposed to be over at 8. I remember getting on the phone and calling people at 11.30 in the hallway phone. Landline, like big receiver. Calling people's rooms, telling them, you've got to get down here. God is doing something. And that was like a Tuesday night in the middle of a semester when I was just there to scan my card and get credit and God showed up. One of the truths is, and this isn't a big deal, and I really didn't intend to spend this much time on it, but I just feel like the Lord kind of told us to press into this moment, is that we live in a society that oftentimes tells us that the things of God, the small group you're in, the life group you're in, church attendance, whatever it may be, that it's an optional part of your life, and you don't really miss a whole lot if you're not there one week. And the truth is, that may be true on some weeks. But there are also times that if you miss it, you miss an opportunity to experience the living God. So Thomas wasn't there. So it says in verse 25, so the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of his nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Thomas wasn't going to miss another one. All right. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Exact same thing. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written 
particularly this last one was written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Three things that I see in this passage that I want us just to talk about for just a minute, um, for us to think about for just a few minutes today, and then we're going to finish up today asking where you stand with Jesus. The first thing that I see in this passage that's important for us to understand is that doubt can happen to anyone. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, had a special calling on his life from the Lord to blaze the trail for Jesus. And even John the Baptist doubted. Now, Thomas, like I said, is only mentioned once in Matthew, Mark, and Luke each. But in John, he's mentioned a few other times. Two specific times that I think about is in John eleven sixteen, When Jesus has heard about his friend Lazarus and he's going to help him. And sometimes I read this sarcastically because that's like my second language is sarcasm. But they're going to Jerusalem, they're going to Bethany, they're going to Lazarus. And all the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, last time you went there, they tried to kill you. And Jesus is like, we got to go. And Thomas goes, well, let's go and die with him too. That's how I read it. Like, well, I might as well go and we'll die with him too. But there are others that think, and we don't know because of the tone and the text, there's no sarcasm font in the Bible, right? Like, it literally could have been, then let's go all the way with him, even if it means we're going to die. There's another time that he's brought up, and this is in the upper room discourse that's happening at the Lord's Supper, around the Lord's Supper table, but the night before Jesus would be arrested. And they're all around there, and Jesus tells them, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you if you will follow me, if you know me. I'll take you to be that place. I'll come back and get you, and we'll go to the place prepared. And one person speaks up in John chapter 14, verse 5, and says, how can we go where you're going? We don't know the way. That's not really a skeptical question. He's like, I want to go, Jesus. Tell us how to get there. In John 14, 6, most of us know this, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What we have from the rest of Thomas's life is that he was a faithful follower of Jesus. He had been there to see all of the miraculous things Jesus had done. The healing of lepers, the healing of people that had... Um, problems that they couldn't get out of their lives from their souls, from the depths of their spiritual being, from exorcisms, from disabilities that he raised people to walk again. He had even seen Jesus raise the dead. Right? Lazarus, a girl who died while they were waiting to be around. Thomas had seen it all. And so Thomas had been a faithful follower of Jesus, had walked with him through this. So what happened in this moment? What happened in this moment is that Thomas's world was rocked. His hope and his security was dead. And the one that he had put his faith in had not met the expectations that he had. We've talked over the last couple of weeks about reasons that doubt can creep into our lives. And sometimes it is personal choices that we make. And sometimes it's relationships that we've gotten ourselves into that cause us not to be able to see things clearly. Sometimes it's sorrow. We lose a loved one or we we, we lose something in our life that means a lot to us. And we can't imagine how God could take that away or unmet expectations of what God is going to do or what's going to happen in our lives that just never falls into place. 
Maybe it's a marriage that is broken or a child that is wayward. Maybe it's a loss of a job or a derailing of a career or an attempt after attempt after attempt after attempt to have a child and infertility is lording over it. Perhaps it's the age that you set that by this age I expect to be married and have a family or start that direction and that's not happening in your life. You look at a a, a hand that doesn't have a ring on it and you're thinking, when is it going to happen? Or maybe it's that familiar sin that you just can't kick and you think, God, I've tried to give this to you. God, I've tried to get over it and I just can't and doubts begins to creep Into your life. Thomas had seen some of the most amazing things that had ever happened in the history of the world performed by one singular man. And yet when he is given something that, while incredible, was not outside the realm of possibility for something he had already seen Jesus do. He was so hurt. He was so sorrowful. He was so distressed. And the attitude of his mind was probably something along the lines like, fool me once, shame on you. You're not going to fool me twice. Maybe your doubt is not with God himself. Maybe it's with the church. You've been burned in a couple of places. Maybe it's in a lifestyle that has been given to you or forced upon you that you never expected to have to go through. It was not the choices that you wanted to make. And yet it seems like here you are. And as the burden of life crowds around you, you just begin to express either in your thoughts or in your words or in your actions that you doubt what God is doing. One of the lessons we learn from this passage is that anyone can experience a doubt in their lives. The second thing we see here is we must be honest about the doubts that are there. I think it is a rather bold thing to stand up to the other ten apostles at this moment and say, I don't believe you. That's what he really said, right? These are ten guys that he had spent his life with for the last three to three and a half years. They come to him excited, over-exuberant, like, you're not going to believe it, Jesus is alive, we've seen him, we've seen him. And he goes, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't care how much time we've done together, I don't know how much we've gone through this, I don't care what we've experienced over the last three and a half years, I don't believe what you are saying. And unless... I get proof myself, I'm not going to believe it. That's a bold statement. As much as it's a bold statement to Jesus, it's a bold statement to his ten friends. It's interesting too, by the way, that when it says in verse 25, so the other disciples were telling him, sometimes we talk about verb tenses in the Greek, and I know y'all get stoked for that. But what happens here is that word is not. So the disciples came in and were like, all it was like, you're not going to believe in Thomas. Jesus is alive. We've seen him. It is. They continued to tell him again and again, trying to convince him. And he keeps resisting. This isn't a one time. And I know it feels like that when you read this. It's two verses. Thomas, he's alive. No, I don't believe it. And that's it. 
This is an ongoing conversation. In fact, one of those details that we often miss is, I don't know, when I was growing up and I was reading this story, I thought that they're all having this discussion and they're having a conversation. And then right in the middle of it, Jesus just pops and is like, here I am, Thomas. That's not what happens, is it? When does it happen? A week later. Now, some translations, they take that week and it's seven to eight days. So a full seven to eight days later, Jesus appears. My guess is this wasn't a one-shot conversation either. It was a consistent conversation for seven or eight days. And we're going to talk in a moment about one of the things I admire about Thomas in the midst of this. But it comes from this idea that he didn't walk away. He was part of a group, 11 of them, plus others that were there. The 11 apostles, remember, Judas is no longer with them. He's the only one in the group that didn't experience this. And that's a weird place to be, the only one in a group that didn't experience something as significant as Jesus returning. And yet Thomas stays with them. And you know every time they were together, like, Thomas, you wouldn't have believed it. Like, it's awesome. I know you don't believe it, Thomas, but that's just because you weren't there. And the inside discussions happening between Peter and James. Oh, remember when he, and Thomas is like, just quit, all right, it's over, right? But he's honest in saying, I've been burned by believing in Jesus. It's too much for me to try again. This isn't the only place in the Bible where that happens either. In the Psalms especially, one of the reasons people love the Psalms is because they are so open about what is going on in their lives. For instance, Psalm 44 is just called the complaint of Israel or Israel's complaint. This is, listen to some of what the psalmist says in the midst of that. God, you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe, and those who hate us have taken plunder. Your hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors and a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and the avenger. Now, can you imagine if I got up here on Sunday morning and I said let's pray to the Lord and I started saying those words there'd be many of you scattering from this place because you didn't want the lightning to come down right God you have forsaken us you make us the laughing stock it goes up at the end and this is his prayer to God God these are all of our things in verse 23 of chapter 44 of the Psalms he says wake up Lord why are you sleeping get up Do not reject us forever. Why are you hiding and forgetting us? For we have sunk down to the dust and our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Well, that's bold. But that's what God is able to hear from us. Can I tell you one of the most ridiculous things in life is to think that you're hiding your doubt or your frustration with God from Him. He already knows. Sometimes we think, and I know this because experience in my own life, if people only knew what I was thinking or what was happening in my life or what was going on, if people only knew, they wouldn't. 
The reality is, God does. And one of the most amazing things about this is that His promises are still true. And one of the things that we have to learn is that we have to be honest with God about our own doubts and our frustrations and the difficulties that we're facing. But more than that, God created us to be in a place with people where we can be honest with them about those same things. And a church that is truly being the church that God has called us to be will have places for you inside of us, inside of this church. We can't, you can't do this as 400 people or 300 people or 100 people or 75 people. This is a life group, life spent together, 10, 15, 20 people at the most in there digging into God's word together and sharing your life together without fear that gossip is going to get out about, well, did you hear what so-and-so shared in Sunday school? Without fear of judgment of happening within that room of, well, I can't believe that you would ever think that, where we can be open and honest with each other about our doubts and our struggles and our fears, knowing that that group of people are going to envelop us and wrap their arms around us and say, I am with you and walking with you in the midst of it. Do you want to know if you have a healthy Sunday school? Let me ask you this question. Life group, is that true of yours? And I don't mean just, man, we love it when we get to share each other's birthdays together or go to each other's kids' kids weddings or whatever that is. I'm talking about if somebody in your room was open and honest completely about what was happening in their lives, would your group embrace them and love them and help them without it getting out of that group? Or would you have two or three that might do that and the rest would be like, ooh, I can't believe she shared that. I can't imagine why he would ever think it was okay to do that. Our church, if we're going to be what God's called us to be, has to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. Over the last year, um, one of the things that I've noticed is this trend that's happening among pastors. And one of two things is happening to a lot of pastors, and I'm thankful to the Lord that he has protected me from these. One of two things is happening to a lot of pastors. One is that they have become so discouraged in this year of the pandemic and criticisms that have happened and things that have happened within their own church and things that are happening in the world at large that they have become so discouraged that they have left the ministry. The other is, and this happened, there were three or four pastors Easter afternoon and the day after when so many pastors and not even COVID related, but some COVID related have had major health issues. And I've read some of that. I mean, it's people, some people that I know and care about that have left ministry or that have had major medical issues. And as I've read about that, one of the things is they said that we are pastoring churches where we don't feel like we can be who we really are and our people can't be who they really are with each other. And that has become exhausting. We have to be willing to be honest about who we are. Somebody said, I wish that in the understanding of our day that doubting Thomas wouldn't be known as doubting Thomas, but simply as honest Thomas. Because doubting makes it sound like a negative thing and honesty is what's really happening here. Thomas is like, I'm just being honest about what's happening. 
But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. Amen? Because what else we see in this passage is that our doubt can lead to discipleship when we open ourselves up to experiencing Jesus. A week later, still just amazing, a week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, same exact thing that happened with the disciples at first, right? It's like Jesus is like, Thomas, I know you missed out on it, but I'm going to give you the exact same experience. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now that's significant because it's the same language that he used with his disciples, but it's also the same language in that discussion that we talked about in John chapter 14. You know, when Jesus is talking with them and Thomas says, how do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus tells them a couple of times in there, peace be with you. It would have been like he was saying, hey, remember what I said in the upper room? It's happening here. And then he says to Thomas, he doesn't criticize Thomas, right? He doesn't get on to Thomas. He doesn't yell at Thomas. He doesn't and say, how could you not believe? He just speaks plainly to him and says, do whatever you want to do. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Now here's something interesting too that a lot of people miss in this story. We don't have any evidence from this scripture that Thomas actually did any of that. Right? Jesus shows up and says, hey, if you need proof... Touch my side, touch the scars in my hands, come whatever you need. Now, he may have, there's a chance he may have, but that's not what the scripture tells us. It just states that Thomas responded to him. Thomas said to him, okay, Lord, please let me walk over, let me touch, let me feel. It just says, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. By the way, only place in John where someone describes Jesus as God. Now, there are places that we can find they use words that could be understood. Even my Lord could be like a master or like a, an employer, if you want to, like a boss. But it also could mean Yahweh Lord. And here it's obviously Yahweh Lord. And then my God, the word he uses, he doesn't just say, you are a mighty one. He says, you are the living God. It is the most bold declaration of faith of anyone in the Gospels. And it comes from someone who said, I'm finally ready to experience whatever you have for me. My Lord and my God, the one who's in absolute control of my life from this day forward, completely altered his life. And when you encounter the living God, it will change who you are. And what the direction of your life is. We know some about Thomas's life after this. He went east. He went east into Asia and to other areas to spread the gospel. It's crazy when you look at all the stories about how they all kind of center around Jerusalem for a while. And then at some point God, through the persecution and other things, begins to spread them. And they go in all different directions. It's almost like they took a map of what they knew of the day and said, I'll take this part. You go to this part. You go here. I'll go here. And he says, I'm going east. And what we have from tradition, from writings, not scriptural, but other writings that are to be trusted, is that Thomas ended up in India where he eventually was killed for his faith by being speared to death. And 
In those moments before his killing, he was given an opportunity to deny Jesus as Lord and God, and he refused to do so. Doubting Thomas did not live his life in doubt because the experience he had with Jesus assured him for the rest of his life. So a couple of words for you as we leave, as we think about what God did in this story, what God will do with our doubt. And the first thing is we need to learn to fight for what is important. This is what I mentioned earlier about Thomas. One of the things that's most impressive to me is that he continued to be in community with these ten guys and the other disciples on that seven to eight day wait that was coming to him. He fought because he knew that this was the most important thing in their lives to figure this out. If this were true or not. If this is true, it's the most important thing. And we have to learn to fight for the most important things of our lives, including what the claims of Jesus are on our lives and our world. But I also want you to know that he fought in community. He was with these guys. Now, we don't, we don't have uh, evidence from this passage that he stayed with them. But from other things and what we know is that he probably met with them, walked with them, was with them every day during the midst of this. Living their lives, trying to figure it out, trying to wait, trying to find something. It would have been so easy for him in this moment to walk away. I'm afraid there's so many people in our society that get burned and sometimes very legitimately burned by the church or by their faith or by a friend. And they just walk away without fighting for what's most important. And then the second thing is when we come into an encounter with God, when we see God for who he is, we must surrender to him. I mentioned this. There's no evidence that Thomas actually went and touched. He just simply said, I am completely surrendering to you. What I find interesting here is he puts conditions on belief. And when Jesus shows up, those conditions no longer matter. Tim Keller says that, Coming to Jesus with conditions means that the conditions are the things that you are counting on as your Savior and not Jesus himself. And in that moment when all of that is gone and it's him face to face with the resurrected Christ, he unconditionally surrenders his life, as we mentioned, even to be martyred for his faith. So we fight for what is important. When doubts settle in, we don't just give up easily. We surrender when we encounter the living God. And then the last thing is, we rest in Him. There's this beautiful picture throughout Scripture of what it means to come to Christ. And the word is used as rest. And for most of us, we think of rest as sleep or relaxing. But that's not really the biblical sense of the word. The biblical sense of the word is that we fall into who Jesus is and we trust him completely. And we are completely reliant on him to carry us the rest of the way. One of the things that I do at almost every funeral service that I'm a part of is at the end of the graveside when we are gathered together as family and as friends gathered around paying our last respects to the earthly life of a particular person. I just has this understanding that for those that I am doing a funeral that are believers in Jesus Christ, they have already spent a couple of days in the presence of their Savior, at least. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And funerals never happen the day of a death. 
It's usually two to three days in between. And so I will stand there, and one of the last things that I will say in the public sense is, I believe that this person has already heard the words of their Savior. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into your rest. Now, modern translations of that have taken that verse and they have changed the parable ending a little bit because of research and study. And the word rest there really means enter now into the joy of the Lord. And I love that idea. The idea that we are completely in with a God who cares. This is my question to you today. Where are you with Jesus Are you a Thomas in those eight days when he didn't believe and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and today is the day that you need to take that step of faith and say, I'm going to surrender? Maybe you're someone that has been discouraged lately and there are doubts that have crept into your life about God's plan or God's idea for your future and you need to claim again a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11 that's given for the church but also for individuals that God has plans to prosper, not to harm, plans of a hope and a future. Maybe you just need to pray, God, I need an encounter with you. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. I will be standing here. This altar will also be open for you to come and pray. And I would just ask that if the Lord is leading you in any direction, that you would come this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come into this moment... Lord, I know that in a room this size, there are people here that have not yet accepted you as their Savior. That have not yet come to a place where they have surrendered their lives to you. And Lord, today is the day that they need to do that. I pray, Lord, that you would make them uncomfortable. That they would realize that's something they need to do. Lord, maybe they've been a member of a church or a member of this church. Or they there was a time in their life when they thought that it happened, but it hasn't. Because... It was just words or it's just routine. And today is the day that they're saying, Lord, I want to be saved. I want to know that I know and that it's from you, God. Lord, maybe there are those today that are like, I have no doubt that I haven't accepted Christ. My life testifies to that and I have no doubt about it. And today is the day. I pray, Lord, for those that are here that have never accepted you, Lord, that they would have the ability to to come, to ask, to seek. Lord, to be able just to pray in this moment a prayer of asking for your forgiveness and admitting that they are sinners, people that have done wrong, that have said things they shouldn't say and thought things they shouldn't have thought and done things they shouldn't have done. Lord, that they would believe, as John calls us, The fact that you were the Son of God, the living God, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave to prove your power over sin and death. That they would believe in that and then confess you as Lord and ask you to save them. Lord, I pray for those in this room that have made that decision before in their lives, but doubts have crept in. Maybe they've never made that public. Maybe they've never gone forward in the next step of baptism after that because of worry or concern about what people would think or what people won't understand. 
pray, Lord, that you would give wisdom in this moment as they think about that. I pray, Lord, for those that are believers that have just hit a season of doubt or frustration or struggle. Lord, and they are like Thomas, like I just don't know how to step forward without seeing evidence. Lord, today that you would, as they seek you, encounter them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.